Hey everybody, this is Jazz's editor Brian Zimmerman here to introduce another episode of Jazz's Not What You Think. In this week's episode, Jazz's publisher Michael Fagan sits down with English rock icon Peter Frampton to discuss the guitarist's latest album, All Blues. The new recording finds the former Humble Pie and The Herd singer putting his own spin on iconic blues tracks from legends of the tradition like Bo Diddley, B.B. King, Ray Charles, Taj Mahal, and many others. The album, which was released June 7th, has already rocketed to the top of the Billboard charts. In the podcast, Frampton talks about how he was inspired to take on such an adventurous project after playing a number of classic blues tunes while he toured with the Steve Miller Band. He also discussed how he found deep influence in the work of Miles Davis's Fusion-era albums. Frampton officially kicked off his 50-date farewell tour in Tulsa, Oklahoma on June 18th. It wraps up on October 12th in San Francisco at the Concord Pavilion. All right, that does it for me. Let's join Peter Frampton as he sits down for his first ever interview with a jazz magazine. Hi, this is Peter Frampton here. You're listening to Jazz Is Not What You Think. My first jazz magazine uh, article ever. No one from any other jazz music magazine has ever asked for an interview. Well, I, I, I'm glad to be the first, and uh, hopefully it's it's a memorable one. And welcome to the show. Like I mentioned, uh, you know, I, I'm a couple years your junior, but I bought Rock On, uh, Humble Pie's <laughs> Rock On, in, in 1971. I think it may have been your fourth album at that point. Now, to show you how long ago for our listeners. I bought it on eight track tape. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, and what I remember like it was yesterday was the opening track that the guitar and the vocals just cut through like a knife. I was hooked. And, oh, and, good. and that was your beginning, I guess, right? Sort of. With Humble Pie? Yeah. Yeah, that was, um, uh, the first um, time I came to America was with Humble Pie. Uh, I was with a band, The Herd, that had um, uh, three big hits in um, in England and Europe before that. And then uh, Steve Marriott, obviously the singer of Humble Pie, um, was in the Small Faces, and we both left our bands and, and formed Humble Pie together. So um, that's how it all started, and that was the first band that I was with that that came to um, the U.S. in 1969. Wow, wow! And, and so you know what's interesting about your new album, All Blues, which obviously we'll, we'll spend some time talking about, and that is, Humble um, Pie back then was kind of blues oriented. So this isn't really a new direction for you, mate. Would you say it was maybe a revisiting of your roots? I think it's a revisiting, and it's very comfortable, I have to say. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, I've always, um, even before Humble Pie, obviously loved the blues, um, loved all our English guitar players that came before me playing wonderful blues, a la Eric Clapton, Peter Green, etc., etc., because there's a lot of them. Um, and at that time, I think that was... Um, that was when I when I became aware of them. I realized that it just seemed like every guitar player in England wanted to play the blues, 
and I loved it too. But I thought, well, there's going to be an off. That's a big. That's a big amount of people to compete with. So I think I'll go a slightly different direction. Not not shunning the blues at that point because I loved it so much. Still listening to it, but I decided to do a sort of uh, expose on the jazz <laughs> for myself. Yeah, sure. Yeah, on jazz, not the jazz, jazz. And um, so um, that's when I started. Um, well, a friend of mine, I was in a band before the herd called The Preachers, and, and the, the leader of that band gave me a bunch of albums um, on a Friday and said, we're rehearsing Tuesday, I want you to learn all these. And there was Kenny Burrell, Jimmy Smith, um you know, uh, who else? Oh, a very young George Benson, um, uh, playing with, um, Jack McDuff, I believe, the Jack McDuff trio. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. And then, and then I started listening to Joe Past. Uh, my father introduced me to, to Django Reinhardt when I was eight years old. So, you know, it was kind of, uh, a foregone conclusion that that would sink in at some point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it, it's it's kind of interesting because, you know, I, I know that, you know, in so many ways you were a colleague and a friend of the Beatles, and, and some of their music was certainly rooted in jazz. And then you take maybe a more current uh, a band that's still around, Steely Dan, that a lot of what Donald does is rooted in blues. Oh. Uh, yeah. I mean, yes, and, and he, it works. Yeah, he... he uh, he crafted the blues, blues and jazz, which is, uh, he's a, uh, a, a native born American, and that, this is where the, where jazz and blues came from. It was invented here, and there's nothing like an American, uh, to then go and write with those influences, uh, with his talent. I mean, uh, we're all, I mean, God, if you don't like Donald Fagan, um, <laughs> you're in a lot of trouble. But I mean, uh, just just so talented, and yes, uh, combined uh, the his jazz chords in there, just uh, wonderful, wonderful. Can't say enough good yeah. things about him. Oh, well, I, I, we're both fans, absolutely. The uh, it, it's funny because I, I was thinking about Steely Dan when I was looking at your discography and, and starting from, you know, the herd and humble pie and then your solo career. And as you know, uh, and as most listeners may know, some listeners may know that Donald Fagan wasn't the original singer. I mean, he was one of the singers and then he became the singer and he kept stealing that, even though he went on his own to do Donald Fagan projects. So mm -hmm. yeah, it's, we're, we're, we're all fans of, of Steely Dan at jazz is, and I'm glad you are too. Oh man, so, yeah, of course. Yeah, uh, in fact, you know, you've heard of that, the uh, kind of R&B, uh, artist, uh, singer, Brian McKnight? Yes. So, so I was talking to Brian a, a while back and, and he was, he said, are you related to Donald? And I said, well, we think we're cousins in some weird way. <laughs> and he said, um, he goes, do you think you could, like introduce me? Because I'd love to do, he's my favorite artist. I'd love to do something with him. And I'm thinking to myself, Man, you're Brian McKnight. You could just pick up the phone. Exactly. It, it, <laughs> yes, it's wonderful too. I mean, that that would be. Have they done something together yet? They haven't. They have not. Oh well, that I'm sure that'll happen. That will be wonderful. Yeah, yeah, and um, you know, you mentioned George Benson a while ago that you had listened to him early on 
and I actually was talking to George a couple weeks ago, and I told him something about probably another guitarist who I assume you're probably a fan of, that's Pat Metheny. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and, and Pat and I were talking about guitarists one day, and he said something that was really fascinating when I said, so what do you think of George Benson? He said, well, I think George is probably one of the greatest jazz guitarists ever. But if I had a voice like his, I'd probably never pick up the guitar. <laughs> and, and, and then I thought about you. I said, well, here's an artist who obviously has amazing chops. I mean, the guitar heads all recognize that Peter Frampton is a great guitar player. But you also have this voice. You get yeah. both. And there, I, I guess there's like a handful of artists you know, clapping like you mentioned, others that can do both. Well, I, 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 you know, if I had to choose one, it would be guitar playing. But, but I, I the thing is, I started off. Um, uh, I did, never really wanted to be the singer. Uh, um, I sang, you know, um, but you know, every band I was in, very young, where I'd sing one or two songs, and I enjoyed that. That was fine. But my my forte has always been, you know, playing guitar behind somebody else, and uh, a la humble pie, you know. And um, uh, I think that uh, it's just one of those things. I hey, I I, I I'm very lucky. I do have a, a decent decent voice, but it. It has its limitations as far as I'm concerned. Um, it's no Winwood. Um, <laughs> you know, someone like that, you know. So, I mean, I could do a good background vocal for Steve. But, uh, <laughs> um, as far as, there's another one with voice and musicality. Oh my God, with piano and guitar, drums, everything he plays. So, you know, he's, he's been a huge influence on me since I first heard him in Spencer Davis, but he's, he stretches out too. He can play jazz. He plays everything, you know, and that's yeah. what's so wonderful. That's why I'm a huge fan. Well, speaking of everything, um, you know, I've listened to every one of your albums. I've, I've followed you through the years. You've gone in a, many different directions. And one of the things that I thought of, especially now in this age, and I know you're on A&M Records, uh, and, and that was Humble Pie's label, so that was sort of a natural transition, I'm assuming. And and did, did you ever work with, I mean, did Herb Albert, did you ever work with Herb back then when he was much more involved in the label? Yes, uh, Herb is uh, wonderful. Uh, well, both, uh, it was a privilege to be on A&M Records in the late 60s, early, early 70s, um, because it was the finest uh, independent label out there. And it was run by... Um, uh, a very astute businessman, Jerry Moss, um, sure. who was a huge music fan, and his buddy was became very close with Herb, and who is a wonderful guy too. They're both, and and they formed a, a label to cater towards the artist for the first time, really, and we we benefit. Humble Pie benefited from that. I benefited from that. They stayed with their artists for as long as it took to when they believed in them, which they believed in Humble Pie and me, thank goodness. And uh, 
you know, Humble Pie didn't have a hit record until their fifth album, and neither did I. So um, it was, uh, I managed to play with, uh, on Herb's, I think at least one, maybe two, two of his albums I did a solo on, I think. And um, just the nicest human being, and so is Jerry Moss. So they're family, you know, as far as I'm concerned. And uh, I'm just thrilled that I was, I didn't know at the time how lucky I was, you know, but yeah, it was yeah. a phenomenal breeding ground of great music. That's what that place was was like. Yeah, I agree, Peter. And, and, and for those of you who, who don't know it, the A is Alpert and the M is Moss in A&M Records. And it was indeed a phenomenal label. And at the time it was, I, you know, I, I, I talked to Herb one day and he was telling me, we're talking about artists on the label and Queen U and, all these the carpenters and all these incredible, incredibly talented artists. And, and I, I asked him, I, I was kind of baiting him, and I said, so what artist on your label did you have the highest, you know, not the highest, but, you know, such anticipation that they were going to be a superstar and it didn't work for some reason? And he literally said, I know what you're thinking. And I said, what? He said, Gino Vanelli. And I said, yeah. That guy was on fire. A&M essentially lost his career, and then he left A&M. And mm-hmm. it never happened for him, probably like it could have. But, you know, again, you're right. The A&M was doing something special at that time that was just I, – I, I don't know if it will ever be replicated. But that leads to my next it, it can't be. It can't be replicated anymore because the music business is completely different. Um, and labels – um, uh, it's one album and you're gone, or one album and then you stay. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> yeah, and and you know, I did you ever think that? Okay, so if if I was launching my career in 2019, that would be so different. You know, the same talented Peter Frampton in 2019. Um. The record labels are so different today in the way they function with A&R and marketing and things like that, and distribution for sure. Um, have you ever thought about that, what that could mean? Um, well, I think that if I had st- if I'd started, if I was like, you know, 18 today, um, I, there's little or no chance that I would have it as easy as I did when I started back in uh, you know, the early 60s. And um, because it used to be we didn't have computers or video games or anything like that. Or We had three TV stations over here, um, and we have one in England. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and it was a completely different situation. We were, back then, we were making it up as we went along with with rock and roll, and mm-hmm. um, I, I was part of a kind of second or third. I was in the second generation, I guess, of rock and rollers, mm-hmm. and um, the first being the Buddy Hollies and the Elvises, and and uh, that that started in the mid to late fifties, and it wasn't until the sixties when when the the Beatles and the English wave. Uh, you know, came over here. And so it's, it was, uh, uh, yeah, I was part of the second generation and, and, um, 
But it, it, it wouldn't happen now. It, it couldn't. There, yeah. there isn't. The, I remember waiting outside at midnight for um, a record to come, the Beatles' new record to come out at one minute past midnight. And the, sh the shop would be open in London, you know, just yeah. to sell the Beatles' second album or something, you know. You and, and me both. <laughs> and, 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 and that, and you'd, you wouldn't mind waiting. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and I remember, I remember I used to buy those records. I think they were like maybe two bucks or two and a half bucks. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you, and you saved up all your money because I was a poor kid and I couldn't wait to get the new Beatles album. Yeah, it was uh, very, very different. And, and of course, it was, it, you know, you actually went home, you got the, you, you got the album out of the, the, the cover and you put it on and you played it all the way through. You didn't go, oh, wait a second, I've got to go <laughs> hear track seven because that's the only one I like. <laughs> Right, because right. that's what you've heard on on the internet, you know. And I, 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 to be honest, I don't think people today listen to a track. It's very rare where people will listen to a track all the way through, you know. It's it, it's very different now. Oh sure, yeah. Short attention spans, whatever it is. It, it I I love the days of album oriented repertoire. It was just. It was something where you, you put the needle in the groove and you let it start playing and it gets to the end and you flip it over and you do, the, you do it again. You do it again. Um, I remember doing that with, uh, uh, I went up to London and went to, um, uh, it's called Petticoat Lane, not Petticoat Junction, Petticoat Lane on a Sunday and it, they had a, um, uh, like a bazaar, you know, it was just a, uh, little open streets, uh, open, um, you know, selling things on the streets there. And um, uh, so I went up there, and they had a record store there um, uh, just off a truck, you know, off a, just a, uh, the back of a truck there, and they had mm -hmm. um, Sgt. Pepper. Um, and it wasn't due out for another week. And so I said to my girlfriend, look, this is the Beatles' new record. It's not supposed to come out till next week. So I said to the guy, you know, this is, doesn't come out till next week. He said, do you want it or not? <laughs> so, uh, I think that truck um, probably was meant to go somewhere else. And so I actually bought Sergeant Pepper a week before it came out and went home. And we sat in my, in my girlfriend's mother's living room and on the floor, put the record on and... It was like when we started listening, it was dark when we could, we had to go to bed, you know, it was like, wow, we didn't stop, you know, because it was that, it was that big of a deal. And it was. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, it's funny, the, again, talk, talking to Benson just a couple of weeks ago, he told me when Abbey Road came out, he was signed to a jazz label called CTI. Right. And Creed Taylor ran that label. I, you probably met Creed over the years back then. And, <laughs> And he was a real interesting character, real, real music guy. And uh, he called up George and said, George, on your next album, I want you to go get the new Beatles album, Abbey Road, and why don't you pick a song off there and we'll put it on your new album. It's obviously going to be a huge success. And he called George the next day and he said, so which track did you like? He said, I couldn't pick. I liked all of them. And they wind up doing an entire instrumental jazz guitar album of the, the Beatles' Abbey Road from start to finish. Uh... <laughs> That's great. 
Hey everyone, it's Brian again. I just wanted to take a quick minute here to thank this episode's sponsors. They include Smoke Sessions Records. The label has just released a new record by drum legend Al Foster. It's called Inspirations and Dedications. You can check it out online at smokesessionsrecords.com. Thanks also to Blue Note Records. They've got a new album by pianist Jamie Cullum out right now called Taller. To check it out online, visit their website at bluenote.com. And thank you to ECM Records, which this year celebrates its 50th anniversary. They've got a new concert recording of Keith Jarrett playing solo Bach from 1987. To learn more about that album and all the other great stuff coming out on ECM, visit ecmrecords.com. Another big thanks to the online streaming service Deezer. We regularly curate playlists on this platform. To check out our latest playlist, visit deezer.com and search for Jazz Is. Our playlists also appear on Cobuzz, another one of our sponsors. This is a high-res streaming service that is the premier destination for audiophiles looking to stream music online. Visit cobuzz.com, that's Q-O-B-U-Z.com, to learn more. Another thanks to jazzradio.com, featuring more than 35 channels of curated jazz music for free online. Visit jazzradio.com to check it out. Thanks also to the New Jersey Performing Arts Center in Newark, New Jersey. On the calendar for them in November, a performance by Chaka Khan. That's taking place November 14th. For tickets and more info, visit njpac.org. That's njpac.org. Lastly, we'd like to thank the U.S. Navy Band Commodore's Jazz Ensemble, currently celebrating their 50th anniversary. They've got concert dates around the country. If you want to catch them in action, visit our website and click the Navy Band Commodore's banner. All right, that'll do it for me. Let's get back into the conversation between Peter Frampton and Jazz's publisher, Michael Fagan. Well, transition to the new album, All All Blues. It's, of course, you would pick that title. It's one of my favorite artists of all time, Miles Davis. It's the title of his 12-bar modal blues composition that appears on his best-selling album, Kind of Blue. And it also right. appears on your album with my friend Larry Carlton. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess, um, you know, uh, people will say, um, you know, he does what on this album? <laughs> um, but uh, it's, you know, it's... I've often said that if 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 you told me that I could only listen to one album for the rest of my life, <laughs> I was uh, I went on a desert island and got and I washed up there, and, but I had a record player and and an album. It will be kind of blue. There's no guitar on it, um, yep. but it's one of those albums that there's so many. For a music, well, for anybody, because it's the biggest selling jazz album I think of all time. But I mean, I agree. for everybody, it, it's it's just got a mood that draws you in. But for me and musicians, I think there's just so much to learn there and so much to love about every note and every chord and every phrase that's played on that album. And it's not like uh, no one's going berserk and uh, shredding on that, you know on that album it's just playing the right notes at the right time over the over a wonderful new chord you know that they've just changed to and that's what just pulls me in it's just so all 
Soul Blues was one that I've always loved because of its its you know six eight three four whatever you want to call it, and um, I uh, I just gravitated towards that one, and I thought, well, this is probably more than we we've bitten off more than we can tr- chew here. Well, this is a testament to my band. We yeah. came in the studio that day. We'd all listened to it um, many times um, and crammed on it. But then uh, Adam Lester and I, we said, well, why don't we become the, uh, the, the, two, sac- the, the, the two harmony parts and uh, play the riff? on guitar so we decided to do that so we worked that out together that's all we did and Mm -hmm. maybe we discussed you know how it was when it was going to end or whatever um and that is on on all blues all blues is take one and it blew me away um so and then I, i believe my my guitar solo is is live and then we overdubbed larry um and uh what a what a great experience that was i i we've worked with larry on, on the road he's come and sat in with us quite a few times and um just you know a mentor of mine and a wonderful person as you know um and and he he just he just played a a larry carlton solo for us <laughs> yeah and and, and larry as you know, no one does it quite like Larry. No, yeah, he, uh, he's he's a spe- he's a special, real special guitarist, uh, and, and of yes. course, um, very much rooted in blues, which is I think what yes. makes his sound so beautiful. So you also yep. have another friend, although I must say that I haven't talked to him in years. Now I, I'm going to have to go call him now because I feel bad. And that's Steve Morse from uh, from those listening on the Dixie Dregs, uh, and now Deep Purple. Yeah. Now Deep Purple, yes, yes. And uh what what another incredible guitarist. Yes, I mean, um he, he we didn't manage to actually physically get together for his solo, but we sent him uh the track and he did it because he's always got a studio his at his place, so and he sent us back that amazing solo. So um yeah. he's actually someone that I, I wrote with, I I I practiced with and jammed with and recorded with on an album of his called um, Stand Up. And we wrote yeah, the title sure. track together. And wow. um, I didn't know that. Yeah. And then he asked me, we did a, a duet together at um, Carnegie Hall, just acoustic. just And that that was amazing, just the two of us playing. And uh, he gave me some things to learn that uh, stretched me. And, and even still to this day, um, uh, I remember when I stayed down at his his house when we were recording uh, stand up. This is years ago now, but uh, he brought me a cup of coffee in the in the morning, and he, I got in the night before or something. He brought me a cup of coffee in the morning. He said, "Let's get up." I said, "What?" He said, "Yeah, we're going to practice." I said, "Okay." <laughs> <laughs> so um, you know, Steve is someone that you can be speaking to him on the phone. And you can hear this tick, 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 in the background because he's playing his guitar while he's talking to you. He's <laughs> he's always playing. He's never not playing. I don't think so. Um, he's a wonderful character. Love him to death, and and a dear friend. And um, yeah, he definitely 
gave me, as we would say in England, he gave me a kick up the arse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, I remember even with, with Steve on one of the early Dixie Dregs albums, there was this album you may recall called What If? Mm-hmm. And it is, it is probably one of the greatest jazz fusion albums because they're, they're doing jazz changes and he's playing this rock, beautiful rock solos over it. And you're like, wow, they, they really fused these two genres together and made it work. Yeah. I, and a lot of credit there goes to T. Lavitz, obviously. Absolutely. Uh, uh, lo- I love T. He was, yeah. He was wonderful. I got to yeah. jam with him too. That was wonderful. Yeah. 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 T. T. I, again, he, he was another guy that, you know, so sad because he really had, he was a musician's musician. People who are really good musicians really understood what he was doing. Oh yeah. It's phenomenal. Yeah. Well, the, have you ever considered doing maybe kind of a, a jazz fusion record, like a, like a Steve Morris, Dixie Dregs kind of thing? Peter Frampton band? You, there's nothing I can ever say no to because if, if I feel like it, then I'll do that, you know, but, um, I'm definitely, uh, we, we've actually done a, um, uh, well, there is an instrumental album. As We've done a lot of recording since October, um, and we're working, we're just about to finish our fourth album. So All Blues is just one of uh, a quartet of albums, and when we get off this tour, I'm going to be recording more as well. So you never know your luck. I might decide to do one of those. Well, it seems like a jazz is cover to me. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I mean, I know, I know it's not like being on the cover of Rolling Stone, but, but they, they were the, the magazine that I modeled after in the early 80s and said, I want to be like the Rolling Stone of jazz. Yeah. Uh, and, and in fact, you know, speaking of all blues, uh, the Miles Davis composition, did you ever play with Miles? Oh, no, I would have. I would have loved to. I mean, if I, yeah, I, I doubt whether uh, he ever thought of me in that in that way. He probably just thought of me of this this guitarist standing there in satin pants. So um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm a huge. Um, well, actually, actually, you were that guy, except you could also sing and play. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> but I mean, I had some wonderful stories about Miles. I forget who it was, but it was was a bass player that was playing uh, the first gig with him. And um, he kept on, Miles kept on pointing down to his shoes, Miles' own shoes, and looking at him, you know. And so he, he thought he better turn down a little bit. So he turned down. And then Miles is still going, pointing to his shoes and going, shoes, you know, my shoes. And, and so he turned down some more. And then he, he thought, well, I better, I better go ask him what he's talking about because he's still pointing down, you know. Down means turn down to me. So he goes and stands right next to Miles. He said, what do you say? And they're still playing. And he goes, I wanted you to see my new shoes. <laughs> That's Miles for He was just ribbing him on his first date, you know. Uh, you know, Miles, you know, I, I had the good fortune, the blessing of hanging with Miles. Oh. And, um, and, and in fact, the, the spring issue of Jazz's Magazine 
has the cover shot that we, we actually did the photo shoot in his house back in 1989 with, with his finger to his lips. Oh, yeah. Plastic. So we shot that in his house for a cover of Jazz's in 1989, and we re-ran that photo shoot in the in, actually, it's just coming off newsstand now, but it's on the website, jazzes.com, that classic mile shot. And what was interesting is that it was all pre-internet. Remember, 1989, and I wanted to meet with Miles, so I convinced his manager to let me meet with Miles to show him the photos, which back then, they weren't JPEGs. There was no such thing. There were 11 by 17s and contact sheets. You remember those days? Right, yeah. And I, I met with Miles and. Uh, when I walked into his place, he had like an entourage of people. And I, you know, a magazine publisher, I had magazines in my hand. By the time I got to Miles, his entourage had pulled all the magazines and stuff that I was bringing out of my hand. And he just turned to me and he said, family. So it was, he was <laughs> that kind of guy where he was totally unexpected. But back then he, he, he took the time to put these photos in kind of yes, no, and maybe piles. And then after about five minutes, he got frustrated, and he kind of put them all together, and he handed them to me. He said, Michael, here, you pick. Oh. That was, that was, that was Miles. He was just oh. unpredictable. Yeah. A wonderful guy. Wonderful guy when you, when you sit down with him. So the new album uh, comes out in, as a double LP as well and blue vinyl. Yeah. I guess, How about that? I guess you pick. I guess you pick blue, blue for blues. Yeah. <laughs> see, I, Red wouldn't have been right. No, it wouldn't have worked. It wouldn't have worked. So it's all blue. <laughs> it's 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 all blue. Um, can we switch gears a second? Can you tell me and our listeners about the Peter Frampton Myositis Research Fund at Johns Hopkins? Yes, well, that I, I've just I've started that uh, for obvious reasons, um, and um, it's been quite amazing uh, the response. So I um, I've spoken a lot about what I have. Um, I I have a degenerative muscle disease called IBM, inclusion body myositis, and it's um, very few people have it. It's a very um, it's a boutique disease. <laughs> Only boutique diseases for me. So, uh, so anyway, um, yeah, it's, it's something that, um, my job now is, is to raise money and awareness to, we need to find a cure. Um, it's probably going to be a little late for me, but, but there's a lot of people out there that don't need to get this. So that's my job now. And I'm going to, if I, if I'm the face of myositis now from now on, then that's fine with me. Well, that, that is remarkable. And, and we all certainly hope for the best outcome and recovery for you. I, so all you can, the best thing you can do, everybody can do is just retweet me when I retweet about, um, about the fund or about, uh, the myositis association. There's a lot of different, uh, places that you can uh, donate. Obviously, uh, selfishly for me, as uh, you know, it would be great to get people to donate uh, to um, John's my my fund at Johns Hopkins because I know it'll be going to my team. But it doesn't matter because they share all the information anyway. So um, you know, just uh, yeah, if, if you can spare spare a dime, we'll take it. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. Well. Peter, I wish you the best of luck on your recovery. 
I, I am, I am more optimistic than most because I see what's happening in autoimmune diseases. Mm-hmm. Um, best of luck on your tour because I know people are going to want to come out and see this album live. I'm assuming you're doing a couple of your, you know, popular songs as well when you're on the road, but, uh, but this album will be really fun to see live. Yeah, I think because it's a farewell tour, we have to prepare people for the fact we'll probably do two or three from the, the brand new album, the All Blues. But this, I've asked the audience, um, uh, you know, on social media basically to, to request everything that, well, <laughs> that was, that was a good idea. They requested everything. So, <laughs> which, which is wonderful. Um, so, uh, we're, we're going to, um, we're, we're going to play, uh, an hour and 50 to two hours depending on the, the curfew situation in, in the venue, but mainly two hours, it looks like, which is great. So we'll get a chance to change it up because I know that there's uh, various people are, are coming to multiple shows, which I'm blown away by. Um, so we're going to change it up so that people don't see the same show every uh, every time they come. Well, I will be at the West Palm Beach show. All right. Uh, in Florida. And uh, I'll, I'll try to see if I can hook up and give you a hug all right very good yes it is it has been great to have you on the show thank you so much peter and uh hopefully we'll connect again absolutely michael it's very nice to meet you and uh thanks so much for asking for the interview it's my first time so that's great all right you take care now thank you bye-bye all right bye-bye michael